Hello, this is Tiana Shoei, and I'm the host of the Made to Conquer podcast. This podcast is designed to encourage you to have a deep relationship with Jesus. Jesus told us to make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because when we stand before him, we want to hear the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. Hello, everyone. This is Tiana Showey, and welcome to the podcast, Made to Conquer. Welcome to season three. I cannot believe that we are embarking on our third season together, but I am so excited, and this has just been such an incredible journey. Thank you for joining me. This is Christmas week. So this podcast, I'm recording it in Christmas week. I tend to record these within a day or two of them releasing this. I'm recording this the day before this comes out tomorrow. And I just wanted to remind everyone who listens to this on Christmas week to remember the reason for the season. It's so easy to get caught up in the chaos of Christmas and miss what it's really all about. And I just want to share just a couple cool Christmas facts with you as we kick this off. I recognize that there has it's been normalized and become popular, unfortunately, uh, within certain circles to discredit the value of Christmas and try to make it out to be a pagan thing. And you get a lot of that from the Jehovah's Witness movement, as well as the Muslims like to mock us. Did you know there's no Christmas trees in the Bible? Really? Did you know that I can do things that are not in the Bible? <laughs> Did you also know that there's no grocery shopping in the Bible? <laughs> uh, anyway, sorry. But the reason I bring this up is that while we do have some cultural traditions that are integrated into our Christmas celebrations, like giving each other gifts, which can said to be derived from the wise men bringing the young baby Jesus or infant Jesus. He was within two years of age when they brought him the gifts. That could be stemmed from that tradition, but making Christmas cookies, going out of our way to bless people, putting up a Christmas tree, those things are all innocent in and of themselves. And we know that because Titus tells us to the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled in non-belief or unbelieving, nothing is pure. And so as Christians, we can add these cultural elements to our celebration of Jesus, as long as we don't forget who the center of this is. But one of the most amazing things about the story of Jesus, we when you hear the story of the manger and you hear, oh, poor Mary and Joseph had no room, we miss what God was actually teaching us. There's nothing accidental in the Bible. And this is when you read the Bible and you realize everything in the Bible has a purpose. Sometimes it can feel like, well, so-and-so begat so-and-so and so-and-so begat so-and-so there can't be a purpose in that. Or why does half of the book of Joshua talk about the dividing up of the land and how is that significant? And then you turn to the book of Ezekiel, which is talking about the millennial kingdom in, in chapter 40 on to the end of the book. And you're like, oh, well, there was an intention. So there's everything in the Bible has a reason. There is a reason why the son of God was born in a manger. It was not just to display his humility, but it, this the symbolism goes deeper than that. What is, it, what is it that John the baptizer said about Jesus when he first saw him? He said, behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. Part of what caused the Jewish nation to reject Messiah or mistake that Jesus was Messiah is the fact that they read the prophecies about what Jesus, what Messiah was going to bring through the lens of freedom and liberation from earthly issues, the Roman Empire. They missed that what we desperately needed more than freedom from Rome, more than freedom from corrupt governments, was freedom from the plague of sin in our soul. The greatest treasure that Messiah gives us is life, the freedom from bondage of sin. And the Passover lamb aspect of who he is, is not to be undermined, not to be undervalued. Those of us who live now post Christ and who haven't celebrated the Passover year after year after year with the traditions, we miss some of the intensity and the importance of what it meant for Yeshua to be the lamb of God, to die when the Passover lambs were dying. Where were lambs born? They were born in a stable. <laughs> Jesus was literally and symbolically our Passover lamb. He was 
born in the same place that a lamb would have been born. And what's even more amazing is the swaddling clothes that Mary wrapped him in were far more significant than just the fact she wrapped him in swaddling clothes. That when you when you look at that and you understand what that's actually saying there, when the the Passover lamb was inspected and determined to be acceptable, the firstborn it was had to be a firstborn male lamb without spot or blemish, sin-free like Yeshua. He was then wrapped in a swaddling cloth to kept to be kept pure until the time for for the sacrifice of the lamb so to make sure that he didn't get dirty or splemished jesus was wrapped in the same cloth that a sacrificial lamb would have been wrapped in and then the lord goes and he announces this miraculous birth to sheep herders who were by the way seen as the lowest in society at that time a sheep herder was kind of the scum of the earth it, it, it would have been the outcasts of society and that is who god goes and announces that his lamb has been born and that in 33 years later that lamb was going to bear upon himself the sin of the world let us not underestimate and undermine how beautiful how precious and how magnificent his birth is and then within that two-year time period and we know it was around two years because herod killed all the babies two years and younger wise men from the east come well, many Bible scholars and teachers believe that those wise men came from none other than Iraq, which is where Babylon would have been. And why is that significant? Because who was the head of the wise men in Babylon? A little prophet named Daniel. A little prophet that loved God, sought God, humbled himself before God. And God placed him and lifted him up in the secular world and used him significantly. And he taught the wise men to be looking out because he he knew when Messiah would come because the Lord told him the 62 sevens and then at the end of the 69th seven, Messiah will be cut off. And so Daniel knew exactly how many years it would be when Messiah would come. And he taught the wise men in Babylon what to look for and what do they bring him frankincense myrrh and gold these three things were prophetic of jesus's ministry of life his his burial and his resurrection guys the bible is so beautiful so profound and the christmas story is far more than just a story about a baby being born into the world it is the story of the lamb of god the prophecy fulfilled the prophecies fulfilled isaiah chapter 9 Verse six, for unto us a child is born and unto us a son is given. So as we go about this busy season, I invite you to find some time privately to worship and to celebrate when we pause and we celebrate the miracle of the Lamb of God and everything from where he was born to how he was wrapped, to who visited him and to whom the angels announced his birth is significant and important to this day and what a privilege it is to be able to celebrate the birth of the Lamb of God. Well, that was the quick opening. Don't have a whole lot of announcements. We're just kicking off season three. Do you guys like the new cover and the new intro? Lena did a lot of work for us and she had some great ideas as to how to kind of clean things up a little bit. The The original Made to Cover, the Made, made to Conquer cover was made actually by my brother in Zimbabwe, Trev, and it was beautiful and I absolutely loved it. But Lena wanted to tie the website into the cover and have a little bit more consistent brand. So as hard as it was to say goodbye to the original cover, which is near and dear to me because it came from my brother in Zimbabwe, I am very excited to uh, allow Lena, who has just been absolutely incredible. And I know I talk about her a lot, but I can't even tell you guys. Those of you that know her and have had the privilege of working with her can understand what an absolute blessing she is and how she has stepped up and done so much to help make this podcast possible. And if you are watching on YouTube, you can see this really cool new design she came up with that says Image Bearer. And it's got this beautiful kind of uh, outdoorsy look to it. So I absolutely love it. And all that is available on the store. As I said, we're going to be changing up what's available. So if you haven't gone on there and gotten some cool Christian gear, this one I'm really excited about because people, I, I can't wait for the questions like, what does Image Bearer mean? Let me tell you. Speaking of which, I was thinking about the Image Bearer podcast I did and 
I was reading in Genesis chapter nine, and whenever you tackle a topic in the Bible, it, it is impossible to do it justice in a full hour. Let's just accept that. <laughs> and I came across a scripture that I should have included in that, and I wanted to just pop it in here. But it's fascinating because after Noah and his family come out of the ark, God does something kind of unique. He says, okay, you were just, I, I gave you the, the fruit of the trees to eat before the flood. So we were, a lot of people argue with me and, and say, this is not true, but I can't see any biblical evidence. Otherwise we were vegans before the, before the flood. And the Bible indicates that we, we, we just ate fruit tree or before the fall, we just ate fruit from the trees. And so after the flood, the Lord says, you can now eat animals. I now give you animals to eat. And he says to Noah that only the clean animals, right? There were clean and unclean animals. And then he says, but you can't take the life of a human being because they're made in my image. So that concept that we are image bearers and that humans are made in the image of God is all throughout scripture, including after the flood. And I kind of have this thought, and this is just a Tiana thought. So I, I'm don't 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 go building doctrine off of this. This is just a thought I had, and that is, I think part of the reason why Satan hates us is because when he looks at us, he sees God, because we are made in His image, and we know from stories in the Bible that Satan goes before the throne of God. So I think part of why he is hell bent on destroying us is not just to hurt God, but because because he hates God and he sees the fingerprints of God all over us, and I'm sure that that bothers him. <laughs> well, and then last thing I would say is thank you for those of you who have tuned into the Warriors Rising podcast where Paul and I talk about current events through a biblical worldview. It has gone it, let me just say that it, it, it more people are listening to that podcast than Paul and I thought imaginable. We, you know, we just as the Lord started speaking about this and really put this on my heart and I kind of went to Paul and said, Hey, I've got this idea. I really think the Lord wants us to do this. And Paul prayed about it and confirmed that the Lord also, he felt the Lord also confirming that we never imagined that in our whopping six episodes that so many people were going to listen to the podcast. It has far, far exceeded the downloads uh, than this podcast on a whole open six six episodes so it's it's gone viral and it's not about the numbers and i don't ever want to give the impression that it's about the numbers paul and i were talking about this you know if if, if we impact the life of one person it's been worth all the time and sacrifice we put into it but it is definitely it is definitely um i'm struggling to find the words believe it or not i am struggling to find the words humbling and you know paul and i ask for prayers over that because there's a lot of spiritual warfare that goes into that podcast we we will laugh every week because we will have working technology no issues with our technology we go to start recording that podcast and literally something goes wrong every week we it's almost become a joke like okay what's going to go wrong this week we don't touch anything we don't change anything and paul and i don't don't spend a lot of time coordinating or collaborating. We just don't have the time. So we start really, 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 really early on Friday mornings, really early. And every time we've, we've lost a solid 20 to 30 minutes of our recording time trying to fix technical issues because there's, there's always something. So we would appreciate your prayers over that as God is using that podcast in, in ways that we never imagined. And we're, you know, we're grateful for the opportunity to serve the Lord in that capacity and appreciate your support and your love and your prayers on that. Well, I am excited about today's episode, very overwhelmed by today's episode. I think I've said this many times before, and I will continue to say it. When you're tackling these types of episodes or these types of topics, there is no way in the time we have together that I can do this topic justice. I mean, that's just, that's just what it is. There's only so much one can say, even me, when I decide I'm going to speak at <laughs> my super fast pace, there's only so much I can say in, in the time that we have. And I can't even begin to get into the depth of this topic, but I hope to scratch the surface. When, when I stand behind this microphone, I am both humbled and excited. There's, it's a, it's a whirling, <laughs> it's a whirlwind of emotions. But the thing that I think the Lord has always taught me is I, I'm I'm a nobody, guys. I am just a girl from South Carolina who loves the Lord. And I just want to share with you the journey that the Lord's taken me on. And and these past couple of weeks, as I've really prayed about this topic, this is big. <laughs> this is a big topic. And I and I kind of chuckled at why this was not the first episode. 
maybe the Lord wanted me to be several years into this before he was ready for me to tackle this topic. And I, I don't know that I am ready, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, hopefully we will. But today we're going to dig into what it means and, and the importance and how to obey the first commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. This is the first and greatest commandment and the second like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. We've talked a lot about loving your neighbor as yourself. But now we're going to talk about the first and greatest commandment. So before I endeavor to tackle a topic far beyond my pay grade, let's get in and let's ask the Holy Spirit to lead this conversation because this is his topic. And my goal is to be a faithful steward and servant and vessel of how the Holy Spirit wants to speak to us about this very, very massively huge topic. Father, hmm. (laughs) we love that you tell us in Romans chapter 8. That it is because of the new life that you give us in your Holy Spirit within us that we can cry out, Abba, Father. And you tell us the way that we know whether we belong to you is because your spirit is within us. And so, Lord, you also tell us that everything we do, the words we speak and the strength that we use should come from you. And so, Lord, I I ask right now for you to fill me and lead this conversation that you would be with everybody listening to this and Holy Spirit, that you would be speaking to them. Jesus teaches us that you would be the one that would convict the world of sin. Lord, this topic of understanding who you are and what it means to love you is, is beyond our human comprehension, but by your spirit, not by strength nor by might, but by my spirit, you tell us. And so Lord, we humbly come before you now, recognizing that The depth of our depravity is beyond our comprehension, but because of Jesus and because of the righteousness you've given us, we now can endeavor to obey the first commandment. And so, Lord, we ask that you would teach us and that you would give us a heart like King David, that it may be said of us that we are people after your own heart, that we may love you and obey the first commandment. Teach us what this means and then teach us how to love you and to honor you. Father, I love you and I thank you and I ask that this would be your time and that you would be speaking through me and it's in your precious name in the name of our King, the one who was born of a virgin, the Lamb of God, Yeshua HaMashiach. Amen. The book of Deuteronomy, as Chuck Missler teaches us in Learn the Bible in 24 Hours, is a sermon that Moses gives to the people as he is getting ready to climb the mountain and eventually pass away and be carried into the heavenly realms. And we know that he is still very much alive. Jesus reminds the Sadducees, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am God, the God of the living, not the dead. And we know that Moses is very much alive because he showed up with Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. But Moses was reminding the people of the covenant God made with them and their responsibility. And in Deuteronomy chapter six, Starting in verse 4, Moses lays out the scripture that Jesus later quotes, and he's quoted in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, saying these very words. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. That is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 and 5. So God gives us a description of, of who he is, and then our responsibility to love him with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our strength. What's fascinating about the word love, remember the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, is the first time that the word love shows up in the scripture is in Genesis chapter 22, verse 2. And it's when God is commanding Abraham to take Isaac and sacrifice him. And God says, take your son whom you love. So when I, when I look at the scripture, I ask myself a couple of questions. First of all, what is love? <laughs> what does it mean to love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength? And then in Luke, it, it's quoted this way, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. What, what does that mean? What I think we have to dig into that topic to kind of really get to the bottom of that. So love the Lord your God. Well, 
we have the Hebrew word love, and then we have the Greek word love. And as I pointed out in Hebrew, the first time that that word love, aheb, and I'm probably butchering the Hebrew with that, shows up is when Jesus or when the Lord is referring to the one that Abraham loved Isaac, this deep connection of love that a father has for a child. And those of you who are parents, when you think about how much you love your children, you, you instinctually understand that many of you probably feel a, a sensation within your body that represents love. I know when I think about my family, my husband, my, my parents, my sisters and the kids, I mean, that I, there's a sense of love that I, I feel inside of me when I think about how much I love them. Loving the Lord is a topic that is really tackled through the scripture from Genesis to Revelation. And this is why I said this is such a big topic to tackle. Paul gives us descriptions of what love looks like in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. And one of the beautiful things, if you take that scripture and you, and you change the word to Jesus or you change the word to the Father, again, Elohim, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, you get this great description of who God is and, and what his love looks like in practicality. God is patient. God is kind. God does not envy. He does not boast. He is not proud. He does not dishonor others. He is not self-seeking. He is not easily anchored. He keeps no record of wrong. He does not delight in evil, but he rejoices in the truth. He always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. He never fails. So that's kind of the practical implication. Love is... In the Hebrew, in the way that it's described, it is that it is that part of our soul that gives adoration to God. It is it's it's that's a shallow way of describing it, and we're going to go into a little bit more detail when we talk about the Greek word. But it's that core of your being loving God. Now, before I go too deep into this, because we're going to talk about the Greek word, and my notes this week are probably the most notes I've ever made. We need to understand why God would make this the first commandment. We are told that we are made in the image of God. Now that's not just physically. We, in, we inherit and adopted our free will, our emotions, and our ability to choose love is a part of what it means to be an image bearer. First John 4, 8 says, God is love. God is love love. Therefore, as a human being, the core of our foundation, part of what we inherited when we were made in the image of God is that we will love something or someone. We will in instinctually have that sense of love, adoration, worship, dedication, commitment, all of those things that love would cause us to do for something or someone. That is how we were designed. Humans will love. The question is, what are we going to love? And why would we choose to love that thing? It's going to run the gamut. And it doesn't mean that we love a sole thing. For the non-believing world, they may love themselves. They may love comfort. They may love money. The love of money is the root of evil, as Timothy tells us, or the book of Timothy, Paul to Timothy tells us. They may love pleasure. They may love sex, drugs, movies, other people. It's fascinating because I listened to a lot of podcasts, uh, apologetics podcasts, and I was listening to one where you had a former Muslim who is now an atheist and then a Christian apologist from Oxford talking about the, the idea of evil. How can a good God allow evil in the world? And it was interesting listening to this atheist talk about the fact that his life has purpose and meaning and value because other people love him. <laughs> we are hardwired to not only love instinctually and naturally, but to need love in return. And so when not fulfilled with the love of God and the love found only in Jesus, who again, the Lamb of God showed us what true love looks like and 
gave us the ultimate gift of love, and that was his very own body, we, we will seek to be loved and we will go to great lengths to get that love. Paul and I were talking about in the Warriors Rising, this transgender, or excuse me, the drag queen movement that's occurring, where you have grown men who dress in sexually provocative clothing, gyrating, dancing to young children and having young children put money into their underpants. And the only reason that somebody would be compelled to do something so extremely horrific is because they need love. They need acceptance and they're filling that God-sized hole in their life with sexual exploitation and <laughs> debauchery. <laughs> As human beings, we will love and serve something. And so God in his infinite wisdom, knowing that we are made in his image, understands something instinctually. If we do not first choose to make him the center of that love and point that powerful aspect of who we are made in his image at him, we will end up misusing it, pointing it in the wrong direction, and it will become our downfall. I talk about this all the time when I'm doing coaching. Oftentimes, people's strength is their very weakness if they don't learn how to wield it properly. If you're a very committed and dedicated hard worker, that is a great thing. But if you don't learn when to separate your personal life from your work life, then it will become your downfall. I've seen many people literally go through a breakdown because they worked too much. They did not have a healthy balance. They did not understand the, 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 the separation, the compartmentalization between your personal life and your work life, and they burned out. And it's, it's, it's both a physiological phenomenon that occurs in the brain, but it's also a psychological phenomenon. Your biggest strength, if wielded improperly, will be your biggest weakness. And our biggest strength as human beings is our capacity to love. It's a question of who and what we will love and why. And so the wisdom behind God's love me first is not because God's an egotistical maniac sitting in heaven needing the adoration of human beings, but because he understands that he gave us this great capacity. And when we love him, when we wield this beautiful aspect of who we are to him and we give it to him and he becomes the center of our adoration, what flows from that? Love of mankind, kindness, goodness, gentleness, all of the things we just read about God become the byproduct of our lives when we choose to love God first. It is the most selfless aspect of following the Father is understanding that when we take this part of who we are and we allow it to be His, from it flows true life. The reason why God tells us to love him first is because we will get ourselves into a tremendous amount of trouble. Jeremiah 17, chapter 9, says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? But yet then the Lord tells Jeremiah and then he tells Ezekiel, but I'm going to do, I'm going to put a new heart in you. I'm going to change that deceitful wickedness and I'm going to put a new heart in you. One of my favorite scriptures, and you've heard me quoted on this podcast many times, comes from Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. Above all else, the most important thing that you can do is guard your heart. For everything you do flows from it. Jesus was teaching this to the Pharisees when they were questioning him about not going through all the ceremonial cleansing. And he said, it's not the outside that makes something dirty. It's the inside because what comes out of a man is what's really inside of him. That's what makes him dirty. And so what Jesus was saying is your biggest need is not to look good on the outside. It is to deal with the, the atrocity that is within you. In preparation for this, in, in exploring this idea of love, I read through the book of Song of Solomon. 
or Song of Songs, I highly encourage you to, to do that when you get a chance to read through that because not only is this a beautiful love story between King Solomon and a Shulamite woman, and the, the idea behind the story is that Solomon hid his identity as king from this woman, they fell in love, and then he showed up and, to and showed her who he really was. And so she fell in love with him for who he was and not because he was a king. This is the story of Jesus. Jesus didn't show up in all his splendor and might and glory. He showed up as a humble baby born in a manger or in a barn and laid in a manger. He lived a humble life and we fell in love with him, not because he is the king, but because of who he was. And then we, at some time, will see him glorified as king. But it is a picture of Jesus and the bride. When you read the lines from the groom, those are Jesus speaking to us, the church. And when you read the lines to the, of the bride, of the bride, those are us to Jesus. And there's something so beautiful in that, in, in, in the Song of Solomon. And it's, she talks about her garden, her private garden where he can come and be. Part of loving the Lord is creating a private space within us that is as beautiful as a garden because we have, we have allowed the Holy Spirit to come in and to give us a new heart, to change that deceitfully wicked heart that Jeremiah talks about and to give us a new heart that is promised as a part of the new covenant to the prophets. And to create a space where the Holy Spirit wants to dwell. This epiphany changed my life and I got it from A.W. Tozer's book, How to Be Filled with the Holy Spirit. And A.W. Tozer just reminds us, create a place in your heart and mind where the Holy Spirit wants to dwell. Create that garden where the, where the bridegroom wants to come and be with his bride. Create a space within you that is so lovely, that is so pure, that where the Holy Spirit has been allowed to fully reign and rule as the Lord of your life, that Jesus longs to come into that private garden. He says to the church in Laodicea, I stand at the door and knock. This comes from the book of Song of Solomon, where, where the groom comes to the door of the bride and knocks and she says, but I'm already in bed, I don't wanna get up. And by the time she gets up, it's too late, he's gone. This idea that our, that our dwelling, we are the dwelling place of God, is a place where when Jesus knocks, we run at the door. We open it wide and we invite him in to be, I am my beloved's and he is mine, to be our beloved. Love is this complete and total surrender to the Lord, giving him all of our adoration, and we're gonna dig into what the soul, mind, heart, and strength means, and we're gonna dig into those Greek words because they're very profound. This is not an emotion, it's a choice. And it is a choice that when we make it, positive emotions sometimes flow from it, not always. You know, Tina Turner used to sing a song or did sing a song, what's love got to do with it? That's because the world has a skewed definition of love. And the world's definition of love is very self-serving, it is very euphoric. The right, the, what they're really describing is lust. Lust is lust. <laughs> but God's love is sacrificial. It is always other serving. It is always kind. It is always about the welfare, the best for the other person, but the, the true best, not our shallow definition of best, which is satisfying our lust. But God's love is whole. It's complete and it's beautiful. The word in the Greek is agape. So let's talk about what that word agape actually means. In the Greek, there are four words for love. There is a love that describes familial love, the love you have between family members. There's a love that describes friendship, phileo love. There is a love that describes romance, eros, erotic love. But the agape love is the is the pure love of God. It is the whole love that is not love because of family, friendship, or romance. It is to wish well, to take pleasure in, to long for the love of reason and esteem. When Jesus is restoring Peter after denying him three times, and I know you guys all know this, but this is still important to point out again. Jesus says to Peter, do you agape me? And Peter, now humbled, because if you remember, 
the night that Peter denied Jesus, he told Jesus, I was going to die for you. And then he denied Jesus to <laughs> a little slave girl. <laughs> and so Peter now humbled, says, yes, Lord, I phileo you. I friendship love you. And so then Jesus says, okay, if you love me, then I want you to feed my lambs. And Jesus said, Simon, do you agape me a second time? Again, he gives, he gives Peter the opportunity to be restored for each time that he denied Jesus. And Jesus says, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. And then the third time he said to him, and I'm reading from John chapter 21, starting in verse 17. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you phileo me? And Peter was hurt because he had asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, yes, you know all things, and you know that I phileo you. So Jesus met Peter where he was and said, okay, God, you finally figured it out. Feed my sheep. Jesus' response to love is to take care of other people. You know, what's interesting is that in the book of Isaiah, when God is talking about why he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, we often think about the sexual immorality because that's the story that's painted for us in the book of Genesis, and that certainly was a part of the issue. But what he, but what he says to the people of Sodom and Gomorrah is, the real buff I had with you was the fact that you weren't taking care of the orphan and the widow and the poor. God's heart, the heart of the King of kings and Lord of lords seated on his throne, is that we, his body, his bride, would take care of the hurt, the poor, the dying, the lonely. His heart is that we would find those who have lost hope, who have lost a reason to live, who have no companionship and fellowship. His heart is that they would be the ones that we would reach. Your ways are not my ways and your thoughts are not my thoughts. And this is no, this is so evident when we think about what it means to love others. Because for us, we, we think, give them gifts or do things for them. The five love languages, which are, I'm not trying to discredit those. Those are extremely powerful. But, but what God is saying is that you go find those that have nothing, that have no hope, that have no reason to live in, and you, you, you remind them that they are made in my image, that I love them and that I have a purpose for them. And you, breathe hope into their life because I have given you hope and you show them the way to life. That's why Jesus says, when you hear him summarize the scripture in Matthew 22, verse 37, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Mark 12, 30, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And to love him with all your heart and with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Each of these say, and love your neighbor as yourself. The law and the prophets can be summarized by this. Love other people, love God. So the question then becomes, how do we love God? Have, you know, if I asked you that question, how, what does it mean to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? How do you do that? How would you answer that question? I'm pausing to give you a moment to think about it. Some of you have a variety of different things coming to mind. Some of you, I go to church every Sunday. I read my Bible. I pray. I tell people about Jesus. I do find ways to take care of the poor, the needy, the hurt, the rejects, the outcasts of society. Those are all the fruit of our love, the byproduct of our love. But what does it actually mean to love the Lord? And how do we do it? This is a question I've been asking, and it's something I've been praying about. Because the dead man in us, before we are given new life and become new creations, is not capable of loving God the way that we are designed to love him because our sin nature taints that possibility so deeply. But when given new life and when the Holy Spirit fills us, then we have the capacity to obey the first commandment by the power of the Holy Spirit and by the surrendering of our will to the Lord. John talks about this for us a little bit in John, 1 John chapter 4. We're going to read a big chunk of scripture here, and then we're going to get into understanding what the heart, mind, soul, and strength, and all of that means, because it's actually quite profound and significant when we start to tackle this topic. In 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 7, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. 
and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Let's pause right there. Jesus said, I will say to them, away from me, you evildoer, for I never knew you. The way that we know that we love God is because we are filled with his spirit and we love because God is love. This is how God showed his love amongst us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know that they rely on the love God has for us. God is love. This is twice John says this statement. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love. There is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. And the one who fears is not made perfect in love. This is the key, verse 19. We love because he first loved us. We're going to come back to that. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. Whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. In other words, how can you say you love an invisible God if you can't love his image bearers? And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Chapter 5, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, is the Messiah, is born of God. And anyone who loves the father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. So the evidence that we are the children of God is that we are obedient to him. Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. Verse 3, in fact, this is love for God, to keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. It is not burdensome to love God and to obey his commands, because when we are born of him, we overcome the world. And we love him because he first loved us. Every one of us has a God-sized hole in our soul. And until we are filled with God's Holy Spirit, we will roam the earth and do everything we can to fill that because it is what drives us. It is how our creator made us. When we do not give that to him, when we do not point that to him, when we do not honor the first commandment, we will fill it up with everything but him. And we can even fill it up with religion. And convince ourselves that we have given ourselves over to him, but in our heart of hearts, he is still not the king of our lives. We are content to follow the rules. We are content to settle for our own righteousness, but God is not seated on the throne of our hearts as our king, as the adoration of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. So as I looked at this scripture from the book of luke chapter 10 verse 27 love the lord your god with all your heart with all your soul with all your strength and all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself i asked myself the question what does it mean to love the lord with all your heart so i looked up the greek word there and it's cardias and it is not referring to the, our physical heart but it is all it is the root word for cardiac <laughs> where we get our word for our physical heart 
But the Greek word for cardias is heart, mind, character, inner self, will, intention. It is our core. So when we break down what it means to love God with all of our heart, it is to love God with our character, our inner self, our will, our intention, our core. I've said this before that as a Christian, our identity should be rooted in the fact that first and foremost, we are the children of God and everything else flows from that. This is what this means to love the Lord with all your heart, that the center, the core of who you are is your love for God and everything else flows from that. Above all else, guard your heart because from it, come the wellsprings of life. Everything flows from that. So when we are obeying the first commandment and we are stepping into the design that God created for us and we love him with all of our heart, that means the core, the center, our inner self, our will and our intention is focused on him and he becomes our core and everything else in our life flows from that. That is what it means to love the Lord with all your heart. Because if these were redundant, heart, mind, soul, and strength, then why would the Lord have repeated them? Well, he does this for a couple of points because he's making, he's making a, dis a point to us that there are multiple aspects to our being and every single one of those needs to be pointed at him. And while there are, there is certainly some overlap as we are one, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. While we are one person with these many different pieces, we're not a Trinity, don't get me wrong. We do not have multiple personalities like the Trinity. We have three persons in one being, but God has also made us similar in that we have different aspects to our one being. We're not, we don't have different persons. Don't let anybody tell you that. And if they do, it's because they're demon possessed. <laughs> And you can't have the Holy Spirit and a demon. <laughs> uh, even though people on TikTok will tell you otherwise. The core of who we are, our cardias, our inner self, loves God first. Our soul. This one was so amusing to me when I studied this. The Greek word there is psyche, which is where we get our English word psychology, psych from. When you read the definition of how the, the Greek word uses it. It's a little bit differently than how we use it today. It's actually a lot bit differently. And it's defined this way as the vital breath, the breath of life, the seat of affection, the person. When you look at the Hebrew word for soul, it actually talks about the life of a person. So when you kill somebody, it says, do not do, you know, do not when you're, when it talks about that in, in the Hebrew and killing somebody, it's you're removing their soul, their life breath for, from them. So psyche soul in the Greek, this is actually referring to our breath, our, our being who we are. It is a distinct identity, a unique personhood, the direct aftermath of God breathing his gift of life into us. It is our, it is who we are. It is our life. So when it says to love the Lord with all your soul, what he's saying here is your life, your personhood, who you are, that will that he gave you, what makes you, you, the part of you that will live beyond this body, that is also to love God with everything. So our core, our center, our heart, and then our life breath, our personhood, who we are is to love God with everything. The word strength, this one's a little bit more intuitive to us. It's obviously our might, our force, our ability, but here's something that I find fascinating about the definition of strength. It is overcoming the immediate resistance. That strength, what, what, what Jesus is saying to us here is that when we love the Lord with all our strength, when something pushes against that sin nature or the world pushes against us, we use that strength that God provides. Peter tells us this. If anybody serves, let them serve with the strength that God provides, not by strength nor by might, but by my spirit, to overcome the immediate resistance. When our sin nature tugs at us or the world tugs at us and we have, we want to move that core of us away from God, away from adoration of God, and we begin to, we begin to sense that battle, we then 
employ our strength to overcome that immediate resistance and we get focused back on. The powerhouse that drives us becomes what we channel our love for God. And lastly, and this one was the most fascinating to me, as much as psyche and soul being the same word, the mind, the dianoia, and I'm probably ruining it, but this one was so amazing because listen to this definition of mind. It is the disposition, our thought. It is our understanding, our intellect, our insight. Dianoia comes from two Greek words. Dia means thoroughly from side to side. So it is kind of a holistic as aspect, thoroughly. And noia, noio, to use the mind. So dianoia, the word that's used here, is this concept that we fully use, engage our mind, balance conclusion, full absorbed reasoning, critical thinking, literally thorough reasoning. What Jesus is saying is that when we love the Lord with all our mind, we are critically thinking, we are engaging our thoughts, our intellect into the practice of studying the Lord, focusing on him, critically thinking about him. This goes back to that scripture in the book of Proverbs. It is the glory of the Lord to conceal a matter. It is glory of kings to search it out. We make it our endeavor to use our mind to seek him, to find him, to think about him, to process him. This is what this is what Psalm 119 is about. I meditate on your word. Your precepts guide me. It's this concept of having our minds constantly engaged in the process of thinking about God. So when we look at these four aspects of how Jesus tells us we are to love the Lord our God, which is the first and greatest commandment, that means our character, our inner self, our core belongs to God. Our soul, our breath of life, our identity, who we are as a person, our life, what God creates when he breathes into us, loves God, our strength, the force by which we move through and overcome immediate obstacles, loves God. And then our mind, our intellect is constantly rationally reasoning with him. So many people, especially in the atheist community, write off Christians in two broad camps. Now, this is not speaking for the whole, and I'm not sure, I'm certainly not covering the spectrum, but the two most common ways that the atheist and secular world will push back on Christians is to say either A, our faith is a psychological crutch. And so Sam Harris is, this is his main argument, and he is a very outspoken atheist who's written several books, uh, one of them being Letters to a Christian Nation. And Sam Harris, you know, basically suggests that, that this is all a psychological phenomenon. It's not real. We're making this stuff up. And it is a psychological crutch. It's a coping mechanism for how we deal with the world. I just say it's a really ironic coping mechanism because we uh, don't do any of the fun things that would typically be emotionally coping mechanisms like, you know, uh, <laughs> drugs, alcohol, sex, all the other things. <laughs> Quite an interesting way to psychologically cope, but anyway. And then the other argument is that we're just not very well educated. You know, we were brainwashed. We close our brains off to become a Christian. And, you know, therefore, these scientists who have now created this new religion of scientism, they're the ones who are enlightened and educated. And the only reason why you would be a Christian is because you're uneducated and you're not a critical thinker. But the irony is that one of the ways that we're told to love the Lord is with our critical thinking. And the even bigger irony, and, and secular scientists, you know, all know this to be true, is that science, the exploration of truth, the true science, not the scientism, this fake science that's being promulgated and masking, you know, masking, masquerading as light and truth in the world today, which scientism is this religion of science that science it becomes the source of all truth in our world versus science, true science, which is the seeking of truth and understanding the way that God created the nature, uh, the world and the universe and nature. Science was created by Christians. Isaac Newton was a Christian. It was the love of God and the admiration for his creation and the, and the acknowledgement that the fine tuning of the universe has no explanation apart from a creator that caused science to become a field that many Christians endeavored to understand because it was our way of loving God with all our mind. It was using our intellect to deepen our understanding and think critically about the world and about the Lord. Modern science was founded on Christians obeying the first commandment. 
what would your life look like if the core of who you were, your heart, belonged completely to God? If your psyche, your soul, your personhood belonged completely to God? If your strength, the force within you that you use to navigate the world was focused first and foremost on God? And if your critical thinking mind was continually, perpetually thinking, critically deeping, deepening your knowledge and meditating upon God, how would your life look like? As I've prayed about this and I've asked the Lord to teach me what it means to love him, to teach me how to obey the first commandment, what I find is that this sense of wonder fills me. Part of the reason why I'm such an outdoors fan and, and such a, you know, a fanatic about spending my as much time out in nature as I can is because as a person who's learning to love the Lord with my mind, with my heart, with my soul and my strength, as I look at the wonder of the world around me, I see the magnificence of a brilliant creator. When I stand at the foot of a waterfall, I look at how God took a broken world and he made beauty from it. As I pick up rocks and I don't know, I guess I didn't tell you guys this funny story. I was out hiking about six months ago. I went to this amazing waterfall and on my way back, I looked down and I saw this beautiful piece of quartz sticking up out of some moss and I pulled it out and it was a spearhead, a quartz spearhead absolutely amazing clearly a native american artifact and i was so excited that i i, I love native american all things native american i i uh, as far as like artifacts and jewelry and and right now even on the screen i'm wearing two navajo <laughs> rings i just find it fascinating and i was so excited about this i put it in my pack got home come running out of the car honey you're not gonna believe this i found a spearhead it's quartz it's beautiful so quartz is uh, almost a clear like white clear beautiful 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 artifact and i start searching my pack and it's gone like gone and i was so devastated i was like how did it come out of my pack i don't know where it would have gone this weekend i was out hiking with my family and my dad goes did you lose an arrowhead and i go yes i did actually and he pulls it out and had fallen like under my seat and my dad my dad's eye happened to catch it as he was getting in my car and i was like my artifact oh my gosh and so to me it was just i look at this and i and i just see the beauty of god in this beautiful piece of quartz and i go to the waterfalls and when i pick a mushroom and i look at god didn't have to make mushrooms in every shape size color you just look at this and and my mind stays in the state of wonder and gratitude and appreciation and thanksgiving and i look and i see what an amazing god we serve paul when he's reminding us how to deal with the anxiety of life he says not a suggestion but he says don't be anxious about anything but in everything present your request to god and then the piece of uh, and then the peace that surpasses all understanding will guard your minds and hearts. What Paul is saying is when you approach the Lord with thanksgiving, gratitude, and then you talk to him about the things that are worrying you, he's going to give you a peace about them. But it starts with that gratitude, and that gratitude comes from loving the Lord with all your mind because you begin to understand the majesty and the wonder of the world around us. You begin to understand that the sun rises and sets not because of some cosmic accident, but because the God of the universe says the sun will rise and the sun will set. And we take these things for granted because they have always been, but there will come a day when they will not always be. And this is what the book of Revelation reminds us. And the Bible tells us that in heaven, when he, God has created the new heavens and the new earth, we will not need a sun or a moon because the brightness of the Lord will, will be all that we need. I invite you to ask the Lord to teach you what it means to love him with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and to go on the journey of learning what that means. I think we will spend the rest of our existence learning what that means. But I wanna tell you that it's not miserable. As, as we read in John, the commandments of God are not burdensome. It's not masochistic. <laughs> on the contrary, the more that I have learned what it means to love god and to put it into practice in my life the more wonder the more joy my life is filled with because i see the evidence of an amazing god full of life and creativity all around me and if we don't get this one thing right if we don't get this foundational piece right everything else in our life 
will be headed in the wrong direction. Our core, who we are, the power by which we do things, and our reasoning and our critical thinking, when we give those to the Lord, then we open up into a whole new realm of understanding. The Bible says that God gives the world over to a depraved mind. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. We live in a world right now where, the, <laughs> and Paul and I talk about this a lot on The Warriors Rising, and this is you know the primary topic where we talk about these things that are just absolutely crazy and what the Bible says about them. But as I look at some of these things that are just absolutely, I mean, it's just absurd. It's absurd to those of us who now see the world through the lens of truth. But to the rest of the world, they're blind. They look at us, like I said, and they think we're either psychologically coping or just dumb and uneducated. But what they don't understand is that they have missed tapping into who they really are, what they were really created for, and what true wisdom, knowledge, meaning, purpose, and hope exists when we take what God created and we use it the way he designed it. So many people want to write God off as a mean, angry God, but what they miss is that God is not mean and angry and old-fashioned and outdated. He is saying, I created you with a certain design, and when you don't function within the design I created you, you're missing out on what I really have for you. When we obey the first commandment, we are stepping into a divine opportunity to live our lives and to understand and experience what God actually created us for. We are finally using this tool of life, this gift of life, the way it was designed. And I can promise you, as somebody who has broken many things in my life and who has a husband for an engineer who is constantly correcting me about how I misuse things, things are much better when they're used the way that they were designed. And the same is true for your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. And the beauty of this is not only will we experience real life, not only will we understand who God really is when we finally decide to love him and obey the first commandment, but then we get the privilege of loving our fellow image pairs as a result of our obedience to the first commandment. Heavenly Father, we can't in our broken state love you the way that you've called us to. We are so quick to go back to the broken nature but you tell us that it is not by might or by strength, but by your spirit that we can then step into obedience and begin to function in the capacity in the way that you designed us to. And so Lord, we come before you and we ask that you would forgive us. Forgive us for being ignorant, selfish, cold-hearted, blind, arrogant, prideful, and for desiring to push you away when what we long for and what we need is found only in you. And so, Lord, we, we come before you now and we humble ourselves and we say, Lord, we, we long to know what it means to obey the first commandment. Holy Spirit, we ask that you'd fill us and teach us and transform us. Give us that new heart that you promised, Lord. We long for that new life and that regeneration and we long to love you faithfully. Teach us what it means to love you with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength and teach us what it means to moment by moment, day by day, be faithful in this. Lord, teach us to find the wonder found in you, the glory and the might. Lord, may we be like the psalmist in Psalm 119. May we meditate upon your precepts, upon your word, upon your law, upon your goodness. And may we find ourselves loving you with all our mind, digging into what it is to, to explore you, to know you, to experience you. Do not allow us to settle for anything less than that, Father. Please, we plead you. We plead for you to please lead us. Lord, we are little lambs, easily distracted, easily led astray. Help us to stay at your feet and to be wise enough to learn from you and to follow you. Keep us, Lord. Keep us close to you. Lord, we love you and we thank you <laughs> that you can teach us what it means to love you. And in turn, love our neighbor as ourself. Father, teach us this. Teach us to be faithful to your first commandment. Holy Spirit, feel us, lead us. And we ask this in the name of our King, the Lamb of the world, who took away our sin, Jesus. Maranatha, Lord, please come back soon and rescue us. Until then, use us for your glory. In your name we pray.
Amen. Thank you guys for tuning in to season three, episode one. I look forward to this next year together. And read the book of Song of Solomon. I hope you enjoy it. Be blessed. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the Made to Conquer podcast. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast. Leave a review that really makes it so other people can find this podcast. And be sure to tell your friends and family about Made to Conquer. Anyone else you believe would enjoy joining us on this journey of drawing closer to Jesus.